This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to this episode of Ghost Stories. We are dodging everything from load shedding here through to my cats who absolutely love the microphone that I use when there's load shedding because it has dangly wires. So if there are any sounds that sound like me being assaulted in the background or any crazy bumps that we can't edit out, please forgive me. It's probably because I've been attacked by an allegedly domesticated cat. Anyway, this is, uh, this is life, Nika. This is life in South Africa with load shedding at the moment. Lots of uh, rather bleak sense announcements around this, but we're not going to get into a negative show around what's going on. That's absolutely not the point of this. We are instead, I think, going to have a pretty cool practical discussion about wealth creation and I guess just helping people understand how they can play a more active role in what they're actually doing with their money. Before we get into some of that, let me at least say hello to you. You are in a nice office at the moment, so there's no risk of you being attacked by any cats which is a good thing. So uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, we have some interesting uh, challenges in this country, but at least we're still world champions in rugby. Isn't that isn't that true? Isn't that yeah, ultimately we, what matters? Eh? I mean, that is ultimately what matters. We have to focus, obviously, on the positives here. So uh, we will do that uh, for as long as, as long as possible. Before my cats get too much of a bad rap, I might add, it's not my fault, or not their fault, rather, that uh, dangly wires, that's like a red cape to a bull. There's only so much that a cat can do to control itself. So maybe we'll start there because I think uh, for humans, there's also only so much that people can do to control themselves as well in terms of how they behave this time of year, spending a lot of money, Black Friday, all those temptations are there, right? It's like the wires for my cats. It's very much the same story. It takes a lot of financial discipline to actually navigate this world and get through it in one piece. Again, we're not going to talk too much personal finance today when it comes to spending money. I think we're going to focus on how people save their money. So Maybe why don't we start with what triggered this thought for you of what we're going to focus on today. I think you had a bit of a personal discussion with some friends or something this week. Don't go into the details of that. But, you know, why is this topic uh, something relevant to you at the moment? Yeah, I actually think, you know, to answer this, it's a super important question. You know, what we do with our savings and how we build an investment pot. But I suppose we first have to talk a bit about how you actually build a portfolio to manage in the first place. You know, oftentimes our discussions are, okay, what do you do with your investment portfolio? But hang on, there's people out there that still need to build that portfolio, right, uh, in the first place. And look, this doesn't happen accidentally. Um, You don't catch it like you catch a cold. Um, You have to be diligent and very deliberate about setting aside part of your income um, and making it a lifestyle choice. I think that's the important thing. And then further mentally separate your savings from your investments, uh, doing so deliberately to achieve your desired goals of both managing short-term financial stresses through savings, as well as building a nest egg through investing that may sustain you in the long term and actually help you to build a, a legacy, if you like, that might outlive you, in fact. You know, only this week, uh, oh, I think last night, Charlie Munger passed away, you know, and I mean, the, the legacy that, that, that he was able to build through investing diligently, you know, that, that speaks volumes. Now, these are questions that may be uncomfortable to think about and typically aren't the casual conversations we strike, strike up with friends at a braai. Uh, at least not my friends, uh, you know, but, but sticking your head in the ground when it comes to planning your finances doesn't really help you cover the cost of a burst tire, you know, especially if you're driving an expensive SUV these days, you know, certainly. So, so, so just ignoring the problem of how you build an investment portfolio or savings pot is actually not, is, is, is not a solution. I think the problem is that most people focus their time and attention on growing their incomes with very little attention paid 
to actually what they do with it uh, and do with the part that is left left over after they've covered their living expenses. And in fact, this sounds perfectly reasonable, right? So given the high living costs we face today, but a great principle is to in fact reverse that equation. In other words, and what I mean by this is first decide on what you want to save and invest each month and then do so consistently without fail. And then you can live. So this takes away a lot of the stress and thinking behind actually, how do I build an investment portfolio? It's just, you just have to start. And if you start there and then adjust your lifestyle, I think that's a good principle. And doing so practically. So, so let's make this very practical. You can, for example, set up a debit order that goes off on the first of each month uh, that you use to both save and invest. And then you treat them as an out of sight, out of mind expense that is non-negotiable. This can be a number, a round number, like let's say 5,000 Rand a month, or it can probably be a percentage, which I personally find more attractive, like 10% of what you earn. And then you can adjust your lifestyle according to this after making this uh, non-negotiable payment. Uh, now, this might mean delaying the purchase of you know, that car you've been eyeing or staying in a smaller home or, I don't know, in your case, maybe playing a bit less golf or uh, taking your cats, uh, less, less, less paraphernalia for your cats. But if you save and invest first and then spend after, you will see that over time, this relieves a lot of your financial stress and anxiety as you'll be able to build a buffer for the future. I think this is so, such an important thing. But as I said at the start, you know, this requires you making a choice and being extremely deliberate about it. And if you listen to this podcast and start doing this today, I promise you in 10 years from now, you'll be comfortable sustaining your adjusted lifestyle. Yeah, maybe I can share some of my own life in this and how I actually, you know, manage my own world. So obviously I'm an entrepreneur, which of course comes with an entirely different set of challenges and stresses. I'm really lucky I've managed to build a business that has pretty regular monthly income actually, which is not an easy thing to do. And it's, I'm very lucky to have done that and very grateful for it. But basically what I find is, you know, as an entrepreneur, <laughs> the really hard thing is that you see all your income and then you pay tax on it. Whereas when you are a salaried employee, you just get the after-tax amount. You don't realize just how much is going to the government. And then you still have to pay private schools, security, medical aid on top. It's very depressing. But uh, leave that you know, as it may. So I think when it comes to entrepreneurs, I, I literally had this chat actually with my girlfriend the other day about she's also an entrepreneur. And said to her, you know, just take whatever you're billing clients, whack half of that for SARS. It's not as much as that for SARS, but it's a good rule of thumb. It leaves some fat in the system. Whack another half of that for savings. And then spend the remaining now quarter on whatever the hell you want. And don't worry about what you're spending it on. Now, this is only possible over and above a certain inflection point once your monthly expenses are covered, right? So my theory, and again, I'm, I'm probably a little bit different to most, but I do think, I do believe quite strongly in a work hard, play hard reality, because otherwise your motivation to keep working is not fantastic. You know, I am not personally one of the whole fire, you know, save every cent, try and retire at 35 with no memories or friends. You know, I'm being facetious, but that's not me. That's not who I am. I think we're going to live a really long time. I think we don't realize how long we're going to live for, given the rate of uh, advancement in medicine and everything else. I think we have years to go. So, you know, I like to have this kind of balance throughout my life where I'm, I'm definitely doing the right stuff in terms of thinking long term, but also recognizing the value of experiences along the way. So stuff like travel. You know, I think if you can spend money on travel, you're probably doing your career a huge favor along the way because you're going to expose yourself to so many interesting things. So, you know, to go back to that framework as an entrepreneur, once you've covered your baseline expenses, it's kind of that earn 100 rand, assume 50 is for SARS, even though it's not as much as that, take 25 and save it, and then take 25 and have a guilt-free bit of fun with it. 
and and that's a really nice way to live now that's only possible once your baseline expenses are covered right so i think the other way i look at it is manage your inflection point so what i mean by that is your break even you know if it's like running a corporate if you treat your own balance sheet and income statement like a corporate does you're going to do a lot better than if you just go with the sort of hope is a strategy scenario you know the old story is hope is not a strategy and it's not so if you treat it as a corporate what do corporates like to do well the ones that are run properly like to have the right amount of expenditure. So not necessarily the absolute minimum and not necessarily bloated either, that's never good, but just the right amount. And if you can manage that break-even point properly, then everything you earn over and above that, like in a good corporate, just drops to the bottom line. So if you go and you read about operating leverage or you go and read any of that stuff, once a corporate's covered its costs, if it earns another 100 bucks, you know, and let's say, assuming there's no cost of sales, that 100 bucks goes straight to profit. It's the same on your personal income statement. So I think the biggest thing is, is, yeah, like match your expenses to your income at an appropriate level, which is basically what you're saying as well. You know, assume you need to save first and then spend. That's another way of doing it for sure. It's probably the right way to do it actually, you know, because then your spending is what you're adjusting. And the, and the nice thing is then that 25 Rand that you're spending might be less than if you hadn't saved, but you can enjoy it more, right? Because you have the peace of mind That's for knowing the there's, a, there's a rainy day fund being created, an investment portfolio being built. So you can actually, I'd rather t- spend 25 Rand with, with a clear conscience than spend 50 worrying about, shucks, what happens next month if my car breaks out? 100%. Guilt-free consumption is a gift of note. You know, like, for example, I love racing. I love racing carts at Kalani. It's not a cheap hobby. No, it's really not. But, you know, I do it in a way where I manage my income, my expenses, so that I can do it relatively guilt-free. Sometimes I still look at this and think, geez, you know, I really wish I was passionate about bird watching instead. I'd probably uh, be a lot less stressed. But, yeah, you've got to get to a point in your life where you've got that, that guilt-free consumption. And it comes from managing your expenses first and foremost because, you know, someone said to me the other day, actually, he said to me, you know, a great income statement fixes a bad balance sheet. And it's true in your personal life as well, to a large extent. So, you know, that doesn't mean go and get crazy amounts of debt and then hope to fix it down the line with your bonus. That's exactly what I'm not saying. <laughs> the point being, if your income statement looks good, if every month you're managing your income and expenses to the right level, then your net asset value as a person is going to go up over time. It just is like, that's the nature of things. And then comes all the decisions around what you do with that net asset value, how you invest it. So I always think if you read how corporates behave and you try and really engage with that kind of content, and then you look at your own life, you can actually apply a lot of those lessons to what you are doing, you know, with your own finances. And just the last point on that, you know, comparing entrepreneurs to salaried employees, I think entrepreneurs are almost forced to be more careful because they have this perception that their income is less solid. And I'm using the word perception very carefully here because I certainly can't control what I earn, but if I'm losing a client on one hand and I can see that coming, I can put in a bit more effort on the other hand and try and replace that income. You know, as long as you have a marketable skill as an entrepreneur, you can't control your income, but you can heavily influence it. As a salaried employee, I'm not even sure you can heavily influence it, to be honest, because corporates cut back. They do, you know, things get tough. Corporates close down or corporates retrench people. You can have given 20 years of your life to a company and suddenly you find yourself getting a retrenchment package and that's it. So I think that people in corporate roles, they often spend too high a percentage of their income and they actually assume they'll have that job forever or they'll fix it with their bonus, right? How many people do that? You know, they live way beyond their means 11 months of the year and the assumption is, don't worry, there'll be a bonus this year, that'll fix it. You know, some years there is no bonus. 
So I fully, I fully agree with what you're saying that the starting point of investing is to make sure you have the money to invest. And I, th- I think it's to your point, how you cover a lot of those problems is just being diversified. You know, diversification is not only an investment concept. It's a, it's a concept you must apply in life. You don't only have one friend. You don't uh, put, put all your eggs in, in one basket when it comes to employment, for example. I mean, be able to have skills that make you fungible that if your employer ceases to exist, you are employable by someone else. Or if you're an entrepreneur, uh, like you mentioned, make sure that that you're not beholden to one hand feeding you in, in that sense. So try to be diversified as far as possible when it, when it comes to life uh, as well as investments. And I think people also underestimate the value of a side hustle. And I know that was very much a COVID thing. And you always have to be super careful with your day job. And you also don't want to spend all your time working. It is much harder when you have kids and all that kind of thing. For sure it is. But the maths is pretty straightforward. If you are saving 5,000 Rand a month out of your salary, if you can find a way to make five grand a month after tax from some kind of side hustle, you know, and it's not easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. What you've done is you've doubled your savings rate. It might not necessarily be a big percentage increase on your income, but you've doubled your savings rate. And so over time, as that compounds, and as you do smart things like buy the right ETFs from Satrix, then you know, that will make a gigantic difference to your net asset value over time. So that's that inflection point concept is once you've hit that inflection point where you are able to save something, any additional income you make can drop to the bottom line if you don't adjust your lifestyle. Yeah. So I suppose we should talk about what people do with the money after that. Hey? It's, uh, it's easy. Uh, well, it's not easy to make it, but I mean, that is part one. And I think the point that you made, you know, when we were thinking of what to do in the show is people don't necessarily play enough of a role in understanding what's happening with their money. So they think so much about how to make more of it, but they don't necessarily think about what to do with it thereafter. So I think let's talk to that for a bit. So let's, let's maybe think about what you can do today that, that will have a massive impact in 20 years time, right? I always, always like to think, is there anything I can do today, change my lifestyle that, that might, that might make me a better person or put me in a better position uh, looking forward. So let's uh, practically speak, what, what can you do today? Um, and I think it's a super important question. We need to take it seriously. I, I, I think setting up a debit order to go off each month in order to build a portfolio, that's the first step. And that's something you can do right now. I mean, it takes 10 minutes to put up a Satrix Now account or Easy Equities account or whatever uh, you prefer to, to, to actually have this debit order go off. But just start now. Start planning to say, you know what? I'm from next month, I'm going to, when I get my salary, I'm going to put aside a thousand rand, 2000 rand, 5000 rand, whatever you can afford for now. And then rather adjust your lifestyle. Um, and, it, and you can start there. The second step, I suppose, is to consciously separate your savings from your investing. And I, I you know, we've made this point before, but I think it's so key and something that people very easily confuse. In fact, and, and don't realize that you need both saving and investing, you know, saving, uh, means you set aside capital to help you meet those unexpected cash flow needs, such as you know your school expenses or your car breaking down or replacing your garage door. I mean, we've had a garage door motor fail. I mean, that's a that's a terrible expense, right? So it helps to have a savings pot that you can delve into and actually meet those needs. Uh, you, now you should manage this very carefully, right? Your savings pot you should be risk averse, preferring liquid assets that are stable like let's say money market funds, or even a simple interest-bearing account, uh, which pays a nice interest these days, by the way. And now treat this as your emergency fund, right? Consciously, this is my emergency fund. This is not a slush fund to pay for your Mauritius trip. Uh, If you cannot afford your trip through the 90% that you don't set aside to build your savings and investment pools, then don't do it. Consider then rather taking, for example, a local holiday instead, you know, so go to Mossel Bay and not Mauritius. 
you know, just adjust your expectations and don't don't delve into your savings pool. Because what I found is through casual uh, conversations with friends and family, you know, they they build a savings pool and then all of a sudden they realize, wow, look at this, I've, I've saved a hundred thousand rand. So let's let's go treat myself, right? But but that's exactly what you shouldn't do with your savings pool. Be risk averse. Keep it aside, and those inevitable expenses that that will come your way, you're able to meet those without changing your lifestyle and without changing your investment goals. Now, this differs completely from your investment portfolio. Um, this, on the other hand, should ideally not be easily accessible. Uh, now, this this might sound very odd, right? Like, why wouldn't I not want to access my own money? But but you must make it inaccessible for yourself. It's actually quite an important point. You need to find the discipline to keep your investments aside for five plus years to allow it to grow and crucially to allow you to earn those risk premiums over time that make a difference in the long run. It's very clear actually that the, and I've, I've said this before, you know, the greatest risk to investing is actually not taking enough risk. Um, now, some might be uncomfortable with this statement, um, and look, being risk averse with savings makes absolutely a ton of sense because you don't want to lose money there. You should be shy in losing the money that you set aside. But taking risk uh, is, is actually very uh, important to growing your investment portfolio. Um, so you need to embrace risk and allow it time to pay off. There's just there's absolutely no alternative, no shortcut to building real wealth over time. No one, no one is going to pay you for not taking any risk. Right. And and with risk, I mean capturing well-diversified risk sources. I don't mean going to the casino, betting on black. You know, you've said this before in our discussions, building a hill to die on, you know. So taking undue risk is, is not what I'm talking about here. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean building, for example, equity exposure through time, investing in the stock market, in well-diversified vehicles, and crucially taking luck and timing and unnecessary costs. Take that out of the equation. Just be consistent. Uh, and do the right thing with your investment portfolio. So in summary, if you can start doing this today, uh, putting aside money for saving and investing, making a conscious effort to do so, um, uh, and you treat the two correctly. So you compartmentalize your savings pot for what it needs to do and your investment pot for what it needs to do. I guarantee you, if you start doing this today, you will change your financial situation. That's for sure. There's no debate. So Absolutely. Start now. And sheesh, this feels a bit like a rah-rah session, uh, but hopefully someone listening uh, will take this advice to heart and start sowing the seeds for their financial success, you know, literally starting after listening to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, you only need to read the news around you to realize how important this is, right? I mean, there really is just no choice. You've got to recognize that South Africa is a tough place to actually do business and make a living and it's risky and it's all this stuff. And I think where South Africans really get hurt is on cars. This is coming from a fully-fledged petrol head, but you do not need a million rand BMW 3 Series. You might want one, but you absolutely don't need one. And I scratch my head day in and day out. My business is not doing badly. I am earning just fine. Thank you very much. And there is no ways I would buy a million rands worth of BMW. And yet I will see these cars on the road all the time. And you just know this thing has been funded over seven years with a fat balloon payment at the end. And it's all about conspicuous consumption. And a big part of why I was able to take the risk and leave corporates and actually start my business is because over the years, like I love cars. I've driven some really cool stuff, but they were always older cars. As soon as you're buying brand new stuff, you are going to get killed on what you are spending on these things and what you're going to lose on depreciation and what you're going to pay in finance costs. So my daily, I think it's a 2010 roughly X3. No one is ever going to convince me that a BMW X3 is not a premium way to get around. It's safe. It's German. It's big. It's great. That car cost me about 110,000 Rand. 
I don't think you can buy a single new car for that price. And if you can, I definitely wouldn't want to climb in it. I doubt you can even buy a Renault Quid for that. So again, here I am driving around and my exposure to what I'm spending on transport is 110K worth of capital as my daily car. Yes, I have some other cool stuff because I love cars, but that's very personal to me. I think the point here is just you can have a lot of fun. You know, the other example you used was the holiday as well. You don't have to go to Mauritius. No one has to go to Mauritius. There are magnificent holidays locally where you can really enjoy yourself. And it does sound like this preaching session, which is always irritating, and, and I get that. But at the end of the day, I know, for me, if I hadn't taken these steps early in my career, there's no chance I could have taken the risk of leaving corporate to start my business. And today, I earn a lot better than I used to. And that's been made possible by actually having the buffer to leave corporate and take a risk. And if you don't have the buffer, you cannot take these opportunities when they come up. And you can really, really hurt you down the line, you know? So it's not just about investing and, and having this kind of rainy day fund and all the stuff that you read about or hear about in personal finance and in podcasts and in articles. It's, it's, it's actual real lifestyle stuff. My lifestyle today is so much more than it was even five years ago. And it's because of the sacrifice along the way and it's not really a sacrifice. This is the thing I can't really understand is the marginal return. It's like smartphones. We're now in a world where the new iPhone doesn't really do anything that the last iPhone can't do. You know, long gone are the days of rapid progress in smartphones. I remember when I was at school. I mean, Nico, we're a relatively similar age. You know, color, the kid with the color screen phone, that was a very big deal versus the 3310 clan. It was like a step change in technology. People wanted the new device and it did a lot more. But cars and stuff, it's not really step change anymore. Smartphones, it's not step change anymore. So you can spend half the money for 90% of the experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll go even further that that some might be able to afford it and, and good on them, right? But if if you're doing so at the cost of being able to save and invest and, and do sensible things with your money as well, then you're doing it wrong. If you are putting saving and investing first and ensuring that you're able to meet financial challenges in the future, and then on top of that, you are able to comfortably afford a nice car or go to Mauritius, absolutely do it. So I don't want to sound like the Grinch, but I just I just feel that a lot of people don't don't fully appreciate the importance of actually doing the right thing with what they set aside. They only focus on their income. They only look at their salary level or, uh, you know, this is the amount that I'm earning per month. So I'm entitled to drive this car, go to this resort or do this thing. Uh, and I think that's unwise. Mm. And a lot of that consumption gets driven by the way these assets are advertised, right? What do I need to earn to drive a three series? Now, my view on what you need to earn to drive a million rand car is very different to the bank's affordability test. The bank doesn't care if you ever retire or not. All they care about is can you pay them back over the next seven years? They don't care. They don't care if you have a rainy day fund. They don't care if your kids go to a nice school. They could not care less. So, you know, those affordability calculators are one of the single most dangerous things on the planet. There is almost nothing that causes more pain to consumers than a bank's affordability calculator. That's a, that's a great point because it seems like a green light to, to indulge almost, but it's not. These banks don't have your best uh, at heart, so certainly not. No, absolutely. I mean, even I, I was scrolling on Facebook the other day, you know, a really old-fashioned thing to do, and there was an ad there for a car I really like. Brand new, out the box. I won't share the monthly repayment. But it, I looked at it and I thought, sure, how does the maths even work on this? Because that monthly repayment times 60 is not even, it's not even close. It's not even close. So I went and I thought, oh, let me go see the terms of this funding. You know, click through. Unfortunately, you just give them your details and you wait for them to phone you back. But without a doubt, it's going to be some massive like balloon deal kind of situation. 
And the problem with those is if you need to get out of that transaction in the first year or two, you are stuffed. That car is worth 20 to 30% less than you owe. You are married to that thing <laughs> or worse, you know? And again, it's, it's yeah, as I know this is turning into a very personal finance podcast, but people need to hear this stuff because it's so easy to just focus on the, okay, I have a thousand rand a month to save. What should I do with it? That's great. And that's very important. But is a thousand rand a month the right number? Like, are we even starting at the right point here relative to what you own, or rather what you earn, what you spend? Start there and then worry about what to do with the money. And then on top of that, play a more active role in the money, I think is, is actually a big part of what we wanted to talk about today. But I think both are important. Yep. So speaking of that active role, I mean, obviously there's the old story about, you know, there's financial advisors and there's a lot of people who are sort of taking it into their own hands these days. There are platforms that let them do that. I mean, you kind of talked to, you know, debit order. There's obviously retirement stuff in amongst this mix as well. Lots to think about there. You know, how do you, you know, it's not advice, obviously, but when a friend around the bride says, listen, where do I start with this? You know, what is your approach even? Do you use a financial advisor? Is it very much debit orders and you run to your own tune there, dance to your own tune perhaps? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, certainly one that needs to be asked more than we than we do. So the question really is, where does an advisor fit into what we've been discussing up to now? You know, we're saying the importance of setting aside money for saving, for investing, but, you know, should you have an advisor? First, look, I don't think that, um, you know, a lot of people are currently saying that AI advances and robo-advisors and the like will uh, make advisors per se redundant. I actually don't think so. Actually, on the contrary, I think it might make them even more useful in being able to make sense of market complexity um, and provide the right advice at the right time. So I actually don't think it's going to make them redundant. But but there's always a but. Uh, many people that, you know, for example, are fortunate enough to either have an investment portfolio or able to, to build one consistently, uh, a lot of them completely delegate their entire investment portfolio to an advisor with very little or no regard or input into how their portfolio is actually invested. And very crucially, they have no idea what they pay for it. If you're one of those listeners, you know, perk your ears, because I, I, th- I think you might have a misunderstanding for just how incredibly important managing your costs when it comes to investment is specifically over the medium to longer term. Now, having said that, though, you know, I've heard so many times personally, and I'm sure you have as well, and those listening as well, that uh, you know, when you talk about investments and finances with people, they say, look, I'm a, I'm a dentist, I'm a lawyer, I'm not a financial expert. So I, I mean, who am I to question my financial advisor? Or uh, how am I supposed to even have a say in how my portfolio is managed? Now, look, I completely understand this. Absolutely. But then, then again, you know, if you think about it, these same people are oftentimes uh, are happy to have strong opinions on divisive social issues, for example, or feel they understand sport better than the experts. Uh, and they even know a fair bit about physics and geopolitics uh, to hold a conversation at the bride. You know? but, but somehow feel that with investments, no, these are more complicated and inaccessible topics than talking about, for example, quantum physics. You know? And I wonder why this is. I suppose it is in part because other disciplines have done a, a f- far better job at simplifying their craft to make laymen feel they have enough knowledge to engage in social conversations. You know, I, I sometimes get the sense that financial professionals have, have pressure to make it seem that the only way to succeed in a very complex environment is to have an equally complex process and system that only the professionals can understand. And then they make it seem like simple low-cost solutions are unable to add value. Right now, 
the, the problem is that there's just no evidence that higher cost, more intricate solutions deliver better results. In fact, I can, I can bore you with very strong evidence that prove the opposite, that simpler, low-cost solutions are the best way to build wealth longer term. And if you don't trust me, you know, like I've, I've, I mentioned the last time I talked to you, even Warren Buffett, the great oracle of Omaha, regarded as the best active manager of the last century, even he suggests using simple, low-cost building blocks. And that's the way to achieve longer-term wealth. Um, and look, I mean, on this point, I think this is why uh, your work is so loved, uh, is that you do a great job of making tough investment concepts simple to understand for the layperson. In fact, you can you can think of yourself as as, as the Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye for, for many South Africans when it comes to investing, you know, uh, sort of um, demystifying these this, this complex topic that shouldn't be so complex. But look, I digress a bit. I think back to um, what you asked and the need for advice and your own role that, that you have to play in building an investment portfolio. I think knowing more about investments broadly and more about investment products specifically and the role that advisors play will make you be better able to engage productively with your long-term investment outcomes. And look, I absolutely think advisors have an extremely important role to play. And oftentimes, the importance of this lies in simple things like helping you motivate you to save or invest the same way, you know, that a gym instructor gets you into the gym and commits you to exercise. I think that that's an important role. Um, they can also provide extremely important guidance uh, in terms of estate tax management, life stage planning, for example, uh, helping you decide how to optimally structure your retirement annuities, which is an incredibly complex uh, decision. Now, all of these decisions have an enormous impact and implication for you uh, if you get these decisions wrong. So this is absolutely where a financial advisor is irreplaceable. You, you, you simply can't tell me you do it all yourself. I, I, I do think it's, it's vitally important to get that professional help. Um, but for the same token, ask your advisor the tough questions like, what am I paying? both from an advisory as well as a total management fee perspective. And if, if those fees balloon, you know, if, if you're paying 2% fees per annum, ask your advisor why. And, and also maybe ask what you're invested in. If, if you're building a retirement fund and you're predominantly or even a large proportion of that is invested in fixed income assets, bonds and the like, ask your advisor, what, what's, what's the point? What, what's, the, what's the plan here? Shouldn't I be taking more risk because this is a long-term investment? And so once you start to engage with your advisor, I think this is where you can actually start having a meaningful, positive impact on your investment portfolio. Look, there might be some uh, an advisor listening to what I'm saying now and thinking, oh, you know, now I'm going to get asked these questions. And it, it's almost like questioning your doctor, right? If your doctor says this is the pill you should take, uh, don't, don't ask the, the chemical compound of the pill you're digesting, right? But I'm not talking about frivolous questions. I'm talking about specific pointed questions that, that actually gets to the heart of what you're trying to achieve, and that is building a long-term sustainable investment portfolio. Ask, am I getting enough exposure to equities? Am I getting enough offshore exposures? Uh, do I, for example, have exposure to low-cost ETF building blocks that you mentioned a bit earlier? And it's been shown that these deliver great long-term value. Now, all of these questions are fair, and in fact, they should be asked. And then lastly, I'd, I'd say, don't be shy to build your own portfolio as well, in addition to the advice that you get from a from an advisor, a professional that can help you with tax and, and these questions. And build your own portfolio using simple index building block ETFs. That's a great way to start. It will literally take you 10 minutes after listening to this podcast to set up an account on Satrix Now, or Easy Equities, or whatever you prefer. 
just set up that account. Uh, set up a debit order and start investing today. Let's say, and let's make it practical. Let's say you can now afford, as you're sitting there, you're looking at that car that you saw on Facebook and you go, oh, that's 5,000 Rand a month. Ask yourself, do I really need it? And if you can honestly say, mm, I can actually do without that, then start now, set aside that 5,000 Rand each month from now on and invest that in five different ETFs. Let's say put 1,000 Rand in the Satrix Top 40 ETF, put some in the MSCI World, the S&P 500, the Satrix China ETF, Global Infrastructure ETF, pick five, comparatively diversified, and just get a debit order to put money in those. And doing so consistently then means you're building a well-diversified equity portfolio uh, that invests in low-cost building blocks. And if you can do this for 10 years, I promise you the sky is honestly the limit. And if you can do this in addition to having a good financial advisor that assists you with those important life stage uh, financial advice, you should actually be able to build a very useful nest egg for you and your family. Now, honestly, Coast, and, and tell me honestly now, what we're discussing now, this is far less complicated than, you know, your average scrum penalty in rugby, yet we all have a very strong opinion on that. And it's, it's far less complicated than quantum physics, yet we always feel we can engage in the conversation. But when it comes to these simple financial matters that I'm saying now, a lot of people feel, oh, no, this, is, this is outside of my scope of expertise. Yeah. I mean, look, there's so much to unpack there. I think obviously part of it is is the, the institutions have kind of just made it hard, you know, because at the end of the day, they want to charge you big advisory fees and they can't do it unless they're making everything seem 100 times more difficult than it actually is. So that's obviously a, a you know a major reason why I think it's potentially an issue. And you said a whole lot of very nice, embarrassing things there about the work I do, which I always appreciate. But I think what makes it interesting is if people understand an ETF is just made up of a whole lot of companies. And if you follow that company news, you can actually learn a hell of a lot about the world around you. And then you can apply it in your daily life. You can apply it in your businesses. That's why I often try to pick out, you know, when I write about a company's sends announcement, it's not here's a regurgitation of the 20 most important numbers because I'm bored by that. Never mind the people reading. It's more like strategically, what does this thing actually do? Like what's working, what's not working and why? You know, and then it becomes becomes really, really interesting. The other thing I just want to touch on a couple of other points. So you gave some really practical questions there to ask an advisor, which I really liked because I think people use their meetings with advisors as a nice time to test a hot tip. You know, the question should not be, oh, you know, my friend told me that Tesla's had a really good year. How much Tesla do I have? Like that's exciting. That's not a conversation with your financial advisor. That is of zero value to anyone. Don't do that stuff. Those hot tips don't work. If you didn't learn that during the pandemic, yes, you might have one or two that work. No one talks about the time they lost 70% on a hot tip because they bought Zoom at a stupid valuation. No one talks about this stuff because it's embarrassing. They don't want to talk about it. So they tell you about the thing they got right. Be very, very careful of success bias, survivorship bias, confirmation bias. You know, Pick your bias. It's all in there. And the other thing you mentioned, the sort of putting away 5,000 rand a month, I think it's great advice. So what I've done is I've kind of worked backwards. So at the moment, my, my car that I'm really proud of was my dream car in matric. I was in matric in 2006. It's a 2007 model. It's 16 years old, right? And I'm finally at the point where I can have that and I feel like I can have it comfortably and it's great, you know? It's not the current model of that is a very expensive car, and the point here is you take the time to invest and you wait because what's happening is that asset you want in all likelihood is coming down in value. So if you are saving towards it, yes, you might not be the first owner, but you might be the second owner or the third owner and you're going to laugh at the person who suffered a 50% drawdown while you were saving up towards this thing. And suddenly your total cost of ownership for basically the same experience is a fraction of what it would otherwise have been. So deferred consumption, that's the skill 
that people unfortunately just don't don't like applying because it sucks, right? We all want the best things and we want them now. And why wouldn't you want that? Unfortunately, it's only a tiny percentage of people who can actually do that. And the rest of us plebs need to save towards the things we want. Like that's how life works. So it's a really, really nice advice in there. And I think, you know, just looking at the time, the, the one last thing that I do want to cover on this, you know, in the notes before the show, we talked about the kind of two pot system coming, I think, next year. You know, I'm no expert on this stuff. So I think it'll be nice to, to maybe just get a quick overview of what that is and what it is about that that you think our listeners should be aware of. So I'm, I just have to caveat, I'm also not an expert on the two-pot uh, regulation, but, but very high level to, to, to give you a sense of, of, of what it's trying to achieve. Because there's actually method in this uh, madness. I think a lot of times when new regulation is proposed, people have a warranted skeptical view of it. So they, they tend to think, oh, you know, this is a, now again, there's a cynical angle to this. Uh, so they don't trust it. But look, in, in, in uh, February 2021, uh, Treasury announced some... You know, new reforms to the current legislation governing pension funds. Uh, they call it this the, the, the two-part retirement system. Uh, and it's due to be rolled out in March next year, so quite soon. And it, it, it really revolves around addressing some of the issues that the post-pandemic environment uh, really uh, you know, unleashed on people um, and prevent, in a way, f- uh, future financial hardships. The predominant advice currently, I suppose, if you if you if you sort of read the, the read the some of the media output is that um, a lot of experts believe that the rollout roll should be delayed a bit and that they should be more careful thinking around this but look effectively the the legislation looks to split your retirement contributions into a one-third savings spot uh, which can be accessed prematurely prior to 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 retirement with some caveats of course and tax implications and the like but but let's not sort of get get hung up on the details there and then two-thirds is invested in a retirement saving so uh, retirement part. So the nice thing if, in air quotes is that government is kind of forcing you to save one third and invest two thirds. A, a solid principle, right, in, in, in that regard. So the di- idea is actually to help people save and invest. Uh, and as, as we've discussed here today, it's quite relevant, right? And, and uh, the idea is to basically help people get access to funds on a rainy day. So it, it all seems perfectly reasonable. But the problem, I think, is some people see this as a sign of rushed le- legislation, right? You're trying to push something through, uh, but investors need to very carefully understand what this all means for uh, the access they might have to their retirement savings. Um, so the idea is that Treasury is really looking to help people get access to these finances in times of stress without taking drastic measures that might ruin their, call it their long-term capacity to grow their portfolio. As an example of this, right, the current Pension Funds Act only allows members to access their retirement savings prematurely in the event that they resign or are retrenched. And so in an effort to avoid people that are facing financial distress that look to resign to access these accumulated funds, you actually get that, right? So people resign so that they can access this this fund, this pot that they've saved. So Treasury wants to introduce this two-pot system whereby investors uh, can access part of their retirement savings pool prematurely that stops them from taking these drastic measures like resigning or you know, trying to be retrenched or whatever to do so that and because this might hurt their long-term prospects of achieving financial security at the at retirement, right? Which is ultimately what, what you're trying to achieve. Um, first of all, because they might not uh, regain employment. And secondly, they might actually deplete their savings in, in doing this extreme tangle. So it, it seems perfectly reasonable from that perspective. And I think the COVID-led pandemic uh, actually increased pressure on on regulators to allow for some form of short-term access to funds that you have been saving 
for over time. I do think, though, this needs to be done in a very careful way, where it doesn't jeopardize people's ability to build a sustainable retirement pot. Or, um, you know, if you think about it also, uh, not place undue strain on government to provide for those unable to uh, secure their own independence at retirement. So you have to very finely balance those two things, right? This is give some access, but but not, not strain the system too much. So it's a very tricky balance uh, between much needed access to savings and then also protecting the integrity of your retirement system overall, which I think ill-considered access to pre-retirement funds certainly can bring about. So it's not cynical. It's very practical. This this can put put uh, it under strain. For your listeners, uh, you know, whenever and in what form ever this legislation does arrive, I think the principle of not touching your retirement savings would remain essential, even if you're able to do so. And you must really only do so if there's absolutely no alternative. Personally, in conclusion, I fear that for many, the option of early access might just be very tempting uh, with you know, your short-term relief far outweighing your long-term requirements. You know, If you think about it, people smoke, right? And, and the short-term pleasure of that, uh, you kind of forget the long-term pain and potential for cancer and all these things. You kind of easily compartmentalize that. So I'm just, I'm just fearful that people weigh short-term obligations so high that the long-term requirements just, just you know, pale in comparison. Um, so the only problem is that your post-retirement, post-retirement, your options are actually very limited and your insufficient funds then become a real issue and you don't have recourse. So if you're younger, you're able to make things work and maybe pivot or like you mentioned with your own uh, case, I mean, you're able to pivot, you're able to make plans and alternatives, but when you're retired, you're very exposed if your retirement pool has not grown sufficiently to sustain you. So just keep this in mind as this regulation comes to the fore, you might have access to it, what you don't want to do is someone that that uh, you know is not allowed to drink coke to put a nice cold bottle of coke right there staring at you because that that temptation might actually lead to action i, I just i just hope the regulation is, is 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 ultimately decided in a way and financial advisors can give the requisite advice that this is not abused because i can see very easily and I, i'm pretty sure your listeners can can imagine how this this process can actually be uh, abused for short-term gain, ultimately at the cost of long-term sustainability. Yeah, I'm waiting for the BMW ad of accessing your retirement funds and get the new three series. You know, can have a small feel sick when I see that. Anyway, I think uh, Nico, there's been some really, really good advice here on this podcast. You know, advice, not advice. We know the drill, but there's some very nice, high-level just principles for people to apply here. And I think you know, don't be shy to have the conversation with your financial advisor. Look, if you're listening to this, you're already someone who's curious about this stuff. So unfortunately, we are somewhat preaching to the choir here in a way. But I think there are also lots of things to learn from this, you know, around deferred consumption, but also then having guilt-free money to spend. That's a beautiful gift. You know, if you can get that right, it's lovely. It really is a good way to live. So lots of cool stuff here. Thank you so much for your time again on this podcast. It really has been good. And I uh, think to the listeners, you know, go back and have a look in the library. There are other podcasts, not just with Nico, but with other professionals from Satrix sharing a whole bunch of really interesting insights. So Nico, thanks. I think this is our last one for this year uh, with you and I. So uh, all the best for December, but I'm sure we'll chat. And thank you for all the insights shared this year. Awesome. Thank you for all that you're doing. And like I mentioned, you know, keep, keep being the bull nigh of the finance sector and, and demystifying these concepts and making it accessible for people. And if, if you're sitting there listening and going, you know what, I, I might have learned something in this discussion today, you know, both Ghost and I, I mean, we, we just we just discuss, we just discuss these things. We don't we don't overplan it or anything, but 
I think a lot of the concepts that we that we're discussing come from experience. And so if you have someone that you know out there that that might benefit from this, share the podcast and, and tell them, let's, you know, start thinking about these things. Encourage people to actually take their uh, I suppose put their destiny in their own hands and not just not just trust someone uh, that might have bona fide intentions or might not to actually manage entirely their their savings and their retirement portfolios, but actually start taking ownership. And start doing the right thing. Be- become someone that is involved in your own destiny. And I think you'll be better off for it. Absolutely. Nico, thank you so much. Ciao. Cheers.